So excited for Christmas season. It's always fun. I've debated a million different things of like, what do I talk about today? You know, it's kind of that like, there's a lot of Christmas to talk about and so many good things. But um, I definitely want to touch on some of things around the holiday, but um, just kind of want to ultimately share a word that's just burning in my heart for quite some time. But I want to begin by nerding out on some Christmas stuff. Is that okay? Can we nerd out for a second? Okay. All right. I am fascinated by the sovereignty of God over and over and over and over and over again because he's really amazing to set things up the way he set things up and then it actually works, right? How many of you ever made plans, had it all in order and it didn't go how you planned? God's never experienced that, you know? Like he knows, right? He, right? It's like, what? Anyway, so you go like, even sin? I don't know. He didn't plan it that way, but it happened and he wasn't, he wasn't taken off guard by that. How crazy. But um, just around Jesus himself, okay, nerd out time, statistics, and I've got some really big numbers to share. There was a professor, I read this study about a few years ago, and then I was like, I had to go back and refresh because I was like, this is so good. But um, this professor at a university, I think Westmont College, I believe it was, did this study a number of years ago with 600 of his students all in like statistics and probability, like 600 students, 12 different classes, and he got them all working like maybe the whole year on this specific project, basically going, what are the stats and probability that one man could possibly fulfill every prophecy given about him hundreds, possibly, and even thousands of years prior to him even existing? Like, take your best guess today and say, I think somebody is gonna be born you know, da, 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 in such and such a city and, da, da, and like name two or three things and see how, and it's gonna be 800 years from now. It's, what is your chance of being accurate about that apart from the sovereign word of God, right? So this professor was like, we're gonna dive into this and see what we can figure out. And obviously there's so many moving parts and so many possibilities that, that he said, we're gonna be really conservative with our numbers. So there are assumed approximately 456 specific prophecies about Jesus, his birth, life, death, all of these different things around the, the, the life of Christ, 456, okay? They said, let's take eight of those, just eight, okay? And we're gonna find out what are the statistics and probability, actually mathematically figure it out that one person could fulfill all eight of those eight of those prophecies that we're gonna look at, okay? They spent all this time, worked it all out, and here's the probability they came up with, okay? One in um, 10 with 17 zeros behind it. Okay, I don't know what that number's called because it's too big, right? Let's give, but then they were like, great. That's exciting and only nerdy math people are gonna have any clue what that means, right? It's like 17 zeros, I want that in my bank account, right? Um, yeah, right? Anyway, um, that's the only thing we'd care about with 17 zeros, right? But anyway, he goes, how do we boil this down, okay? Who's been to Texas before? Come on, right? Who's never been to Texas? Yeah, you don't know how big Texas is till you go there, right? Everything's bigger in Texas, including the place, right? So I did a little math, this, like this morning, I did this math, all right? So this is not part of the study, but just to give some context, Tex uh, Texas is... 267,000 square miles, 
Okay, there are 8.1 billion people on the planet right now. If you moved everyone on the whole planet into the state of Texas, everybody gets 400 and, no, 924 square feet. That's like a whole house. In Texas, 8.1 billion people, everybody gets a whole house in Texas. It's that big. And you think that's big Alaska. If everybody goes there, 2,400 square feet. We got like small mansions, you know? Every person on planet Earth in Alaska, 2,400 square feet a person. So these are big spaces of land. I think I've, I've never been to Alaska. I picture it similar to Texas. It's more than double Texas. What? So this guy, statistician, was like, how do we quantify this for people to understand? And he said, let's take the space of Texas, the entire area of the whole state of Texas, and we're going to fill it with silver dollars. Cover it. Two feet deep. That's 10 with 17 zeros after it. Silver dollars. Okay? The probability of one person fulfilling eight prophecies is if you took a person, blindfolded them, set them somewhere in Texas. Oh, before this, you fly over Texas, you mark one silver dollar with a little mark, and you toss it out the plane, mix up all the quarters for a little bit, and then you release one man in the middle of Texas somewhere, blindfolded, and say, you get to walk around as long as you want, but the first quarter or first silver dollar you touch has to be the right one with the mark on it. That's the probability of one person fulfilling eight prophecies of Christ. That's eight out of 456. They took it a little further just to go like, what if, okay? They brought, they, they brought it up to 48. You know, college students, when they get excited about math, you know, right? They're like, let's go bigger, you know, hey, teacher, right? They went to 48 prophecies and the stats they came out with this one is 2.5 with 157 zeros. It's a lot of zeros, right? So how did they quantify that for space? Because that's like the whole globe covered in silver dollars, you know, over 157 zeros. That's more than the 17 zeros. In case you're not, you know, in case you struggle with math, some people do, right? It's like, that's a lot more, right? So they do this and they said, okay, what's something really small so that we can put this together? And they're like, how about electrons? More nerdy stuff, right? Yeah, you're like, seriously? They're very small. They're smaller than an atom. So they stacked these things together and they were like, gosh, it's, it, you can't even quantify that with 157 zeros. So they boiled that number down and actually just did, um, how much was it? 10 to the 15th. 15 zeros, okay? It's actually two, two, 25 with 15 zeros behind it of electronics or electrons would be one inch long, okay? So 15 zeros after a 25 is electrons that big. It says if we were to count them, 240 of them every minute, just start at the line and count 240 per minute, which is counting pretty fast. That's three per second-ish, four per second, right? There's a the math, right? Got it? So you got four per second. It would take 19 billion years to count that one inch line. And that's only 14 of the 157 zeros or 15 of the 157 zeros. Only 48 of the prophecies. There's actually 
456 and he fulfilled every single one. So when you come into Christmas and you're kind of like, yeah, that Jesus thing, it's kind of a nice story and I don't know, like, I don't know. I would say you're ignorant. <laughs> I could be really harsh like this, but look, everybody goes like, that's a personal attack. No, it's just stating an obvious reality. Ignorant, we've kind of made a bad thing. Ignorant simply means, root word, ignore. You're ignoring facts that exist and choosing to build a truth on it, right? That's not that Jesus lacks evidence. It's not that the word of God lacks evidence. It's that you've chosen to ignore it all and go, maybe I'll figure out the world without 157 zeros. Because we look at some of the evidence and we go, it's too big for me to fathom. And God sits in heaven and laughs. He's like, yeah, but it's fun to try. Like, how beautiful is this? And I want to start with this because it is the first Sunday of Advent of the Christmas season, the, the, the Sunday of hope, right? The candle of hope. And I do, I wanna stir and build your hope today, but I, wanna un, I want you to understand that hope is not built on just good ideas and good thoughts and feelings. Hope is built on something that is greater than our experience and our understanding. Because how many of you know that our experience and understanding will give us a very limited view of hope, right? When everything's going great at the train yard, Sam, right? Hope flourishes, right? Yeah. But then like the next week it's chaos, right? And you're like, there's no hope, right? Like if we build it on how we're experiencing life, we will lose our minds. But hope grounded in something greater like a God who can set up 157 zeros that our brains can't even fathom and nail it on every account is a God who gives hope. So we are filled with hope in a season where we're reminded of what God did and how perfectly orchestrated the world has been for all of creation. How crazy fun is that? So in this season, our theme, he is the light, is what we're talking about. We're gonna dive into John 1 because it's kind of awesome and really lays this out. John actually covered it really well last week, so I'm gonna really quick, short, and move on, but it's really critical, some of the stuff we see in here. John 1, very important to go, and this gives some context if you look at, oh, God's been sovereignly involved all the way through. This should build hope as you hear and read what he said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. Like John had talked about, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot understand it. 157 zeros, darkness is going like, it's just so bright, you know, like, Right? Darkness is like, what? Can't understand this. Too big, too much, too powerful. This is the light that is Christ. Mm, I'm just starting. Anyway. Verse six, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John the Baptist. We love our John too. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. We now know that the true light has come to the world. 
So we don't spend every Christmas going, man, I really hope it works out. I really hope he comes. I really, we have the light has come. He's arrived. And we celebrate that hope and that reality. We don't long for like, oh, you know, but everyone prior to Christ's time, they were all like, we don't, we, we, the promises and there's the prophecies and they had all this stuff like 456 things to, whoa, 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 right? We're looking at it going, he did it, he did it, he did it, he did it. And how on earth can we be without hope in such a truth and such a reality? So, whew, there's this big prophetic word about Jesus in Isaiah chapter nine that's very familiar. And this is kind of where I wanna like steer the rest of the morning is out of the end of this that caught me off guard because I wasn't. I've read it a lot of times and something hit me new probably because of the season we've been in recently, but Isaiah chapter nine, verse two, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This was way before Jesus and Isaiah's going like, I see it, I see it. He's pointing to what we now know has happened, but he's going, it's out there, it's out there. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So he's speaking of what's coming in the future. And then we skip down, skip down to verse six, because there's a bunch of stuff in the middle that's cool, but we're gonna move on. For, us, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I love verse seven, life verse. If this doesn't give you hope, nothing probably will, but you can write this all over your mirror in your bathroom and memorize. For the increase of his government and peace is without end. Not just the status, not just the, oh, it's getting, the, it's like the increase, which means like another math term, right? It's an incline, right? Yeah, it's a, we are on a trajectory going up, 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 up always. And if it ever doesn't feel like it, it the feeling is wrong. The truth is that the kingdom of God and his peace is forever increasing. So we don't look at the world and go, oh, he's getting really bad. And you know, and some people's like end times theology requires that this is wrong for theirs to be true. That's problematic, right? Because if the kingdom and his peace are ever increasing, we cannot ask for, hope for, or expect that everything gets really bad before Jesus returns. Because it might look that way in certain ways, but we certainly will not, should not define our world according on what we see, witness, or experience, or feel. We are rooted in the truth, and truth is what gives us hope. Like, this is true. He's proved himself, and I'm ignorant to set it all aside and be like, but my feelings might dictate something different. They will, and it'll be wrong. Does that make sense? Like, your feelings will. Like, you set aside truth and go, maybe I'll feel my way into truth. You might get it like 1% right, you know? It's like your statistics are not good, okay? Anyway, is that fair? My favorite verse, I know, increase of his government and peace is without end. That's so good. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Promise of God, word of God, prophecy, like it or hate it, truth. The next verse is the kicker for me. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it or will do it. What is the zeal of the Lord of hosts? 
And it caught me specifically as I read this passage because for the last year, we've been brewing on this theme of the zeal. We just finished our youth conference at the end of the year. This was not just like a cute idea, like, oh, that'll be fun. It was like, we felt the Lord drop this focus on the zeal for his house will consume me for our youth conference. And we believe it's a prophetic like announcement to Gen Z, to be Gen Zeal, to be full of zeal for the house of God. We're like, this was not just like cute. This was on purpose. And all year we've been brewing on this. And I come to that verse and I'm like, wait, zeal's showing up in the middle of the prophecy about Jesus because the zeal of God will accomplish it. And so what does zeal mean? And that was part of our conversation early on in the year. We were like, we should do zeal. And I was like, teenagers don't know what that means. I don't know that I know what that means. Like, is that gonna connect? And we ultimately, you know, like stood around, but it definitely sunk in our hearts and we landed. We're like, no, we're gonna bring language to this because it feels like the word of the Lord is what is this zeal? And I think to boil it down, define it, whatever, just a different term and words do matter. So you can never totally substitute a word for a word. Do you know that? So when you say like, zeal just means, that's, uh, that's kind of awful to do because if it just meant that, we wouldn't need another word for it. Does that make sense? So zeal is more than, but essentially passion, okay? And we get these ideas like sometimes in religious circles of this, like you should be zealous for God and you should be, no, we shouldn't. I mean, you should, but not by behavior. Does that make sense? Not because you try hard to be zealous, like I'm really gonna be zealous this week. You're like, we don't try hard to be passionate. Humans don't have to try hard to be passionate. Chandi didn't try hard to wear an Eagles shirt today. He's like, I want to. <laughs> I don't understand. 157 zeros. I don't know, but no, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, does that make sense? It wasn't like, oh man, I'm really gonna uh, 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 sweat through this. Teenagers, by and large, culturally, do not have to try really hard to sit down and play video games because they're passionate about it. They have zeal for their video game. They have zeal for a sport, for a team, for music, for whatever. We are very zealous people. There is no question. We're not trying to like stir up zeal in people's hearts. The question is, where is our zeal allocated and why? Like, where are you, where's your zeal going? Where's your passion going? Some of these passions of life are not detrimental unless as we know, they become idols and become more than the zeal that we're intended for as creatures made in the image of God to worship God. Like, you can use the passions of your life to worship God or to worship yourself or to worship other things. And that's a out of balance, out of line reality. So this whole theme we've been talking about is like, all right, zeal, zeal, zeal. Like all, my, all year long, we've been on this thing. And sorry, teenagers, you've heard a lot of this already because I keep trumpeting this, but hopefully there's something fresh in what it, what it sounds like today. And I was at HCS Chapel on Thursday and they got a little dose of this. Yeah, HCS, Harrisburg Christian, there they are. Anyway, it was so fun. That was cool too, because they're, anyway, but so proud of our students. Just want to say the principal at their school this last several months was, was diagnosed with like early onset dementia, there's a little sidebar here. And over the last month or two has progressed really rapidly and he just stepped down voluntarily because he recognized like this isn't working. And so at the end of chapel right after, like I, I, was, I went and talked to the chapel coordinator guy for a minute and I turn and I look and a whole bunch of our students 
um, airborne students and some from other groups had surrounded him in the back of the room, laying hands, praying, believing for his healing, declaring. I'm like, there they are, you know, come on. So, oh, so that to me, that's zeal. There's the zeal for them to see the kingdom of God represented. Didn't make them go, oh, this is gonna be really hard to pray. They're like, no, we've got to go pray. It wasn't a try hard. It was a do what you're called to do, what you love and what you're passionate for. And I was so proud. Props to all y'all that jumped in and I don't know who initiated. Turned into like 35 kids gathered around their principal. He's crying. I'm like, this is zeal for the kingdom of God. It was like, we believe this can happen and come on, how good is that? So proud of our kids. They don't, they, you know, they're amazing. Anyway, um, yeah, whatever. But here's how this kind of went and where we landed in this zeal topic is surrounding this specific story in John chapter two. So we're a whole chapter after in the beginning was the word and this and this, and then Jesus launches his ministry, right? He dives in and go to the wedding at Canaan, does a miracle. And now it's like, and Jesus is like, mom, it's not my time, but she's like, do what your mother says. And he says, yes, you know, right? I don't know all the dynamics of that, but it's powerful, whatever happened, because from there, he immediately says, he goes from there and went down to Capernaum with his mother, Yep, so he's like, yes, mother, you know, and his brothers and disciples where they stayed for a few days, few days. Verse 13 in John chapter two, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. He found men selling cattle, sheep, doves, and other, others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, drove all of them out of the temple area, both sheep and cattle, and money changers, and he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written in Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. So his disciples in this moment are watching the scene. You know, they're hanging with Jesus. They're like, and they've been to the temple a lot of times with him probably, and they're like, yeah, you wouldn't believe what he just did at this wedding the other day, you know, like, and all of a sudden he runs in the temple and it's like, but they're all like, oh, what is this? Like, this is maybe a new side of Jesus and he's making a whip and driving people. It's like, uh, and all they can do to equate this is this has to be that word in the Old Testament. Zeal, passion for the house of God will consume him. So they make this statement. And so I'm looking and going like, if we wanna be a zealous people, we ought to look at the model. Look at the example, look at who it is. And it says in Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. Jesus is the perfect representation and picture of God. Not a reflection, not a partial, not, it says he is the full depiction and revealing of God. So we have an example to follow. This was the very reason he came, my computer locked, was the very fact that Understanding, comprehending, communing with God was 157 zeros that humanity couldn't quite grasp. And God said, I'm gonna come to them. Does that make sense? So we get Jesus revealing the Father completely, modeling what life looks like. Jesus, a practicing Jew, right? 
would have followed Torah to the T his entire life. If he hadn't, he would have sinned. Do you understand? Jesus was not just like this good Christian rebelling against the ways of God and the law of God. He followed Torah perfectly. Did he follow the traditions of man that had been added to the Torah? No, that's where he got a lot of problems, right? But he followed the law of God perfectly. So we assume that Jesus had been to the temple before. Am I right? We know at least once when he was 12 and his parents had a really bad day, three days. You know, if you don't know the story, right? They forget him in New York City on New Year's Eve, you know, like, and they get a day and a half home and go, where's Jesus, son of God that we're in charge of for like a long time? And I don't know, I thought he was with you. And then, so I assume they made the journey back to Jerusalem a little faster than the day and a half away. <laughs> you can imagine like, get there, you know. So somewhere between two and three days, the son of God is lost in a giant city among millions of people at 12 years old. And they come to find him in the house of God. Wouldn't you know that? I'm, but I also have to assume that even at 12 years old, and probably at one year old, two year old, three, all of Jesus' life, he probably went to the temple every year for this part of the Jewish customs, right? So 30 times he's been to the temple. I don't think, and I don't think it ultimately matters. If I'm wrong on this, it doesn't change what Jesus did whatsoever. But I have to assume those tables were not brand new that year. I think for whatever reason, you know, over 400 years of, from the Old Testament to the opening of the new, Judaism had built up this really man-made structure and all these systems that controlled people and all this stuff. I'm pretty sure that there were people benefiting by extorting people in the temple by the time Jesus was born. So for 30 years, Jesus shows up and I'm sure it bugged him, but for whatever reason, he didn't act, he didn't do anything, but it happens to be this visit where something was different. And the big question is like, well, why? What was this? What was he done tolerating? And I think it's because he knew his purpose and what was coming in a very short two and a half, three year period was his visit to the cross and how that was gonna change everything. So history lesson to understand what was going on in this place in the temple and why Jesus would have done this, right? Moses in the, in the, in the wilderness with the, Israelites, after they get out of Egypt, right? Go way back, right? God gives Moses a plan for a place because God's desire has always been to be with his people. Always. He wants to be with his people. In the garden, he walked with them. Sin messed that up, right? We see all that whole picture, right? But God set this thing up and he comes to Moses and he says, this is how I'm going to come and be with you. And there's conditions, there's terms. He gave very specifics. He said this, build this tent, and then inside it, another tent and this, and there's courts and there's tables and there's all this stuff going on in the temple that was all very specific and very purposed. And in first service, I took a little sidebar to remind everyone that God is, has preferences how he's worshiped. And he's not particularly concerned with your preferences in how he's worshiped. Just a reminder, friendly, you know, anyway. But really, God was so specific. He's like, the only way that my presence can come and be among you is if. To, 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 to the point that he had to anoint Bezalel with the Holy Spirit, first person ever filled with the Holy Spirit, was the guy who created all the articles and the things that were used in the worship in the temple. So specific. It's like, God wasn't like, Moses, what do you think? Should we do this song or that song? He's like, he's like no, this is how I will be honored 
This is how my presence will be honored. Nobody gets to tell God how this works. So he obeyed and they built this place and God said, I'm gonna give you my presence. And into the Holy of Holies, this central tent space behind a curtain where the, where the gold ark was made with the angels over it, the presence of God came to be with his people. Still separated because of sin. You understand, this is all a model, a picture. It's all very much a revelation of our lives, of our hearts, of our being. From the beginning, God's design to, hey, look, because of sin, there's this, but I desire to be with you. So he came and he filled it. And every time it was time to move, he would, the presence would come up out and they'd tear down the tent, move it to where God said, set it back up. And when they did it all and had it all right, he'd come back. And then they have the temple. So this has been, I don't know. Do we know the exact time that existed? Moses to Jesus? I should have looked it up. But hundreds of years, 1,000, 1,500 years, somewhere maybe in that ballpark, this has been the practice. This has been the understanding of God's holiness is he, his presence comes in there. We honor who he is. How we behave out here does matter. Does that make sense? And once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to do what God had commanded him to do, the ritual that was required in there, one time a year. And if he went in and he did anything wrong or went in with the wrong heart, if he didn't follow the preferences of God, the commands of God, he'd be killed in the presence of God because the presence of God and sin have no, cannot be together. Does that make sense? To the extent the other priest tied a rope to his ankle, if you don't know this, right, with bells on it, so if the bell stopped ringing and time went too long, they're like, oh shoot, bring him out. Because they couldn't go in to get him and they couldn't leave him there till next year because, right? That'd be a problem in the presence of God, like rotting body just sitting there for a year. We'll go get him next year. No, if they drug him out by a rope and then they're like, who wants to apply for next year? Like, <laughs> who wants to be the next high priest after that? I don't know, like, whoa, right? They understood the power of the presence of God in a very tangible, real way. For hundreds of years, Jesus comes on the scene, lots of man's systems have been added to what was originally designed and in it came corruption. But Jesus knew that when he went to the cross, that the moment Jesus died for, I said, in, I said three in first service, I'm so, I repent, I'm sorry. Four miraculous signs happened, supernatural signs happened. One of those was the ripping of the curtain, right? We know this, the tearing of the veil. That curtain, four inches thick, at least, it's debatable, I think, four inches thick fabric, 60 feet high. I said 30 at HCS Chapel this week, I was wrong on that too, right? I'd rather be on the low side, but that's still big. This ceiling to the top deck up here, I've been up there, is 28 feet. 60 feet was this veil where, that, that separated the presence of God from his people. Guarded them from being destroyed by the, pres the power and presence of God. That was his goodness. <laughs> his kindness was to put boundaries around his people. Is that a beautiful thing? He's like, no, you'll die if I don't do this. But Jesus knew that at the point he went to the cross, that veil was going, the presence of God was going to be released into all humanity, available to all humanity. So right there in the temple courts, there were certain things that could not be happening when that veil came down. That's crazy. 
So Jesus comes in and he flips tables and goes, you know, goes through all this stuff. And it says right here in verse uh, 18 of John 2, then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? That was how they did stuff. And he's like, oh, you want to ask for that? You know, they did it. They asked on, on their terms and he gave them an answer on his terms and I love it. He said right here, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they laughed at him. They're like, what? You don't understand. They said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body, not the building. Because when the temple was rent and the Holy Spirit came and the blood had been paid and the final sacrifice had been made, Jesus, mankind, the flesh, the human, became the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why this happens when you give your life to Jesus. You get the Holy Spirit moves in and your heart becomes the holy of holies. The place where the power and presence of God resides and becomes, you become a temple, a place where people meet with the divine. All temples, all religions, throughout all history, temples have existed for this very reason because there's been an understanding that there's a way for man to meet with the divine. Right? They mimic, they try, God, Jesus goes, hey, relocation project, right here in you. We see it repeated. This is not just like an idea. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. A temple, not a slave, a temple. Like you... How's this? And there's another, 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. He has said, I will live with them, walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Those are three references to Old Testament promises, part of the covenant of God, was that he said he would be this. But they had no idea what that meant until this side of the cross and the beautiful power of the Holy Spirit moving in to us. So we now don't come to a temple on Sunday morning to meet with God. We are the temple. We bring God to this place. You do. You, if you are saved, if you have Christ, if you don't, let's talk about it. If you don't know him, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Like, right, that's just real. It's what he said. But when you know him, when you've yielded to him, when he's Lord of your life, the Holy Spirit takes up residence, fills you up, empowers you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Not a mini, right? Oh man. It's like, I said this years ago in youth, I can say things that are, you know. I asked this question, I said, when in history did we neuter the Holy Spirit? <laughs> right? You know what you do to a dog to like to calm him down, right? You know, like you look through the Bible and the Holy Spirit is fire and he's wind and he's power and he's this. And then in the church, we're like, he's that little voice that reminds us not to do bad things. 
you know, sorry, bad on the mic. Sorry, I say it, anyway, it was holy. Anyway, but we do, we've dumbed this thing down in some ways and not, I mean, this congregation, we love the Holy Spirit, we go for it, we're always passionate, like, oh my gosh. But can we all not yield ourselves at a greater level to the reality that the power of God that was in the Holy of Holies, that's like, you know, I picture the priests that were in the temple doing their thing, right? When that veil came down, weren't like, oh, they were like, ah, like, God, they're run out. They're like, forget this. They know what happens if, uh, I'm not the high priest. They're gone. Like, they didn't understand how, this is, we say, come Holy Spirit. Come, we don't say, oh, don't touch me because the blood of Jesus paid the price. We are not under that. Wow, come on. But none of that, none of that changes what sin does. It doesn't give permission for sin. It's not like, oh, because of the blood of Jesus, my temple can have this, 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 and this, and the Holy Spirit. No, the blood gave you the power to flip the tables and cleanse the temple. Woohoo! It gave you victory so you're not a slave to sin. You're totally a temple of the Most High God. So this is this challenge is like zeal for your house will consume me. That is not zeal for a church building. His house is you. Zeal for this temple to be clean, to be right, to be a place of God, a place where the world meets God. They come in my space. They don't, it's great to gather together. I'm like, I love church. Not nugget. We should do this. It says, don't neglect meeting together. Right? As some are in the habit of doing this is really powerful because what happens when we do come together, you bring the Holy Spirit. Temple, 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 temple. Boom, corporate anointing, all kinds of crazy stuff is possible. But if we come going like, I'm just a, just a pathetic person trying to work out my Christianity. I'm just gonna go to church because I'm really empty. No, you're not. You're full of the Holy Spirit. Let him be. Does that make sense? Like you might have a really rough week, but remember where hope comes from, not how you're going, but what he said and who he is. So you come full, even on the worst week, you come to church as the temple with the Holy Spirit and the whole thing, holy of holies with an open curtain because other people can come and find it. So when someone who doesn't know Jesus walks in this place that's packed full of temples, they meet the divine. Not up here, right there. When you turn to somebody, pray for somebody, encourage somebody, love somebody, take them out to lunch. Like, that's the kingdom of God expressed because you're the temple. No excuses. And I'd encourage you with total compassion in my heart, if you're going like, wow, there's just no fruit of that anywhere in my life, then get saved. I'm like, if you're going like, well, I don't know, like, then just get saved. You're like, but I said a prayer. Well, if there's not fruit, then maybe it was just a prayer. Maybe it was just words that you were like afraid of hell. I wasn't for, okay? I was like, oh my God. I came home from church. I was like, mom, I need to get saved, you know, which was fine. But if there wasn't fruit afterwards, it means there might be more of me I need to yield to him. So you do it every day of your stinking life. It's like, the prayer is like the wedding, but it's not the marriage. I love the prayer, right? 
The wedding's super great, but it does not define your marriage. It's like, great, starting point. There has to be more. There has to be more. And the Holy Spirit filling you is the more. Constant, constantly yielding. Praying the prayer of David, search me and know me, God. Find any wicked way in me and flip the tables, cleanse this temple because I want all of you in me so it all comes out all over everybody around me. That's so good. Oh, man. And it's even crazy because our theme is, I know I'm a little over. That's okay, we'll wrap up. Dave's awesome story at the end of worship. I blame that, but it was awesome. It's like so, I was like, go Dave. I was like, keep going, it was good. Anyway, I'm stealing that time back. Um, Anyway, Uh, that's right. He is the light. But in Matthew five, he made some really radical statements. This is Jesus just before he goes, right? He is the light. But he also said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, should not be hidden. Neither do you put it under a bowl and be shy about it. Instead, you put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, not by trying hard, but by passion and zeal and glorify your God in heaven. You don't get glorified, he gets glorified, but you get to be the light. You get to show what he's like by following the model. Every table in that temple had a purpose divinely set by God. The table for incense, the table for showbread, the table for the lampstand. I don't know if it was those tables that got corrupted, but something about what's meant to happen of the tables of our heart that have been put there for purpose, for worship, for glory to God, all of that can get corrupted. Amen? So the call to us is not, ooh, that's a good story. It's a, oh, all scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, correction, rebuking, right? Like, this is like all of it. So it makes you go, what about me? What does that look like? You're the temple. How are the tables? How are they being used? Do you need to flip a couple, clear them off and let God set a new feast in front of you in the presence of your enemy who messed up your table? The enemy that came to steal, kill, and destroy and misuse the tables of your life, the platforms of your life, the places of gathering have been all misconstrued. Flip them, clear them off, let God set them back up and prepare a table in front of your enemy who just tried to screw up your life. Psalm 23, right? That's like God does this. It's not shame or condemnation like, oh, but I've totally messed up my whole life. Well, guess what the cross was there to do? Guess what the Holy Spirit is fully capable of? To reset, restore, not because you try hard, but because you yield. And your zeal comes out of a response to truth that you know and that you understand. Zeal for a sports team comes out of, I have this something inside me that believes. And that's a minor scale of what this is. But zeal will come out of you naturally When you connect to truth, stop being ignorant and look at who God really is. He will reveal himself. He will. And you can't put it on your terms and on your conditions. Come on his terms and see what he'll do in your life. If you're like, I'm just waiting for God to show up in my life. I'm like, he's waiting for you to show up. 
Like, really? Because he doesn't owe you anything. But he's a good father that will love to give you lots of things. Come on his terms. Recognize that the temple is you, created by him for his glory, for his presence. This is the journey of your whole Christian life. Not just today, it's tomorrow, the next day. Oh, that, temp- that table doesn't belong. Oh, that table, doesn't- let's reset that, God. Let's have a feast together. Because it's God's desire to be with his people. That's, the, that's his desire. He's like, come on, let me have that table. Is that good? He's good. He's the light, you're the light, you're the temple. Come on, it's so good. And how do you not have hope when you know truth? Truth that passes understanding. Come on, here we go. So stand up. Absorb all 157 zeros. I know, right? It's like, come on, it's not a once thing. Like, oh, good. It's like, no, today, 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 today. Here's the response. If you need to come up front today and get prayer, something's stirring in your heart, zeal's popping off inside you. You're going, I need to do this and I need to do this. Like, yes, you just got truth and it stirred zeal. It's a natural response. You're probably not... Your flesh is actually probably fighting you. No, don't, don't, don't. No, you can hold on to that. That's okay. That's cool. Keep that table. Keep that table. Right? That's like the try hard. It's actually a very natural response to go, oh, I know the truth and I need to respond. This is the whole Christian life. Respond to the truth. Don't try harder. Don't try to be better. Don't clean it all up. Come with your table and let him reset it. That's the beauty, beauty, beauty of what the cross accomplished as the Holy Spirit came. So we invite you to come forward if something's brewing in your heart. We have people to pray for you up here. If you've never given your life to the Lord and you're like, I'm not a temple, I don't know what to do. Just come, we just, it's not that hard, but it's really good. So we invite you to come if you're like, man, no fruit. I'm, I feel like I said the prayer. I feel like I've chased God. Maybe I'm in a season where it doesn't feel that way. Come give your heart to the Lord today. It's a beautiful thing what happens in this holy presence of God here because you're all here. You bring the spirit of God into this place and corporately, we all get to participate with heaven in a special way. It's why we go together. It's why we're here. So God, I thank you for today. I thank you for every beautiful temple. God, I thank you that you orchestrated every detail of each and every temple in this room, God. And I say, you said it is good. So God, any unclean thing, any table that needs flipped, God, we ask you to come and reset. Reset our hearts, God, that we would house your presence, God. Be with you, the longing of our heart, the longing of your heart. So God, we commit this week to you, God. We thank you for the power, the power of your Holy Spirit in us that makes all things new. In Jesus' name, amen.